Thank you for tuning in to the East Sonali Baptist Church podcast, where you will hear messages that are challenging to you in your walk with Jesus every week. We update our podcast weekly with new messages from Dr. Richard Sego. And now, Dr. Richard Sego. Guys, to our men, you have this Sunday and next Sunday to get signed up for our men's discipleship night. Uh, and, and let me say this, guys: if you've already signed up once, you don't need to keep signing up. Okay? Some of you you're so excited about it, you're on there three or four times. So it uh, it helps us to get a better count. We don't have to thumb through it quite as much. But we're already at over 80 for uh, next uh, Tuesday together. So. Hurry up and get signed up if you would. And other thing would be if you have interest in uh, going to Israel in January of 2021. So just over a year from now, we're going to have an interest meeting this evening at 515. Right back here in Cliff Boggs Sunday School Classroom, that meeting does not obligate you to anything. It only gives you the information you need to decide whether or not you would want to go. So I encourage you to attend that if you have interest. Acts chapter 2. How do most churches operate? I mean, how do they progress and try to become what they should be? What's their plan? What are they aiming for? Well, they can try several different approaches. Number one, they can aim at nothing. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's a city in our country called Nothing, Arizona. And the sign that hangs in the center of town says, Town of Nothing, Arizona, founded 1977, elevation 3,269 feet. And then it says this, The staunch citizens of nothing are full of hope, faith, and belief in the work ethic. Through the years, these dedicated people had faith in nothing, nothing was their vision, and it resulted in nothing. The same sign could be displayed on many of our churches. They have faith in nothing, a vision for nothing, and it results in nothing every time. So you could just aim at nothing, and a lot of churches have done that, and they've hit it every time. You could, Secondly, you could aim at anything. One day a man was taking a walk in the country, and he saw a boy practicing archery against the side of a barn and he was very impressed because there were numerous arrows that were stuck in the side of the barn and every single one of them was dead center of the bullseye but he watched a little bit longer and what the boy would do is he would shoot an arrow at random into the side of the barn and then he would go up to the barn and he would paint his bullseye around the arrow that also might well describe the strategic planning of most churches just aim at anything then paint a target around it and call it quote God's best for the church you see these churches wed themselves to every latest church growth fad or whim that comes by and they're always chasing the next latest greatest thing to quote grow their church number three we could aim at the wrong thing Matt Emmons was one trigger pull away from winning his second gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. In the lead, he was in the lead position of the 50-meter three-position rifle competition. Emmons was so far ahead that his last bullet just needed to only hit the target anywhere. 
so with unwavering calm and unbelievable unbelievable precision he fired his bullet and watched it pierce yet another bullseye but there was no response from the judges and there was a delay only to discover that he was shooting in lane two but had actually shot the target in lane three so not only did he not win the gold medal as a result of shooting at the wrong target he failed to uh, to medal at all you see sometimes there's cross firing that is an actual technical term unfortunately um, cross-firing in a different way is all too common to churches as well. Well-meaning leaders are shooting across lanes at other targets. And many churches are aiming at things that look nothing like what the Scripture has designed the church to be. They've fashioned this own kind of thought as to the church, so their mission or their vision is often cultural-driven, trend-driven, business-driven, all the while being absent of a Bible-driven vision and mission. So fourthly, we could aim at the thing. It's not our job to determine what we're aiming at. The basic mission of the church is established. Now there's room for creativity, for imagination and ingenuity, but it's not for the purpose of establishing our course. That's already done. How we fulfill our vision, how we fulfill our mission is where we get creative and where we plan. So the purpose that I'm... You say, Pastor, where are you going with all this? The purpose that I have in mind for us today, next Sunday, and the Sunday following is for us to have our vision, mission established. What are we about? What does the Scripture have to say? So I've waited until we've gotten to Acts chapter 2 because as soon as the Lord laid on my heart for, uh, for me to preach through Acts, I knew that when I got to Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, specifically 42 through 47, that would enable us to establish what our mission and vision, vision is, not based on my thoughts about the church, but based on what the early church was doing. We want to take the Scripture and discover the bullseye that God painted for the church 2,000 years ago, set our sights on it, and pursue it as an assembly of Christ's followers. There are three words that I want you to have indelibly etched in your heart and mind. And it's this, gather, grow, and go. Gather, grow, and go. And with that in mind, there are six components in Acts chapter 2 and the aforementioned verses that I just mentioned. Acts chapter 2 that comprise each one of those areas. Uh, today we're talking about gathering. The two components that feed that are praise and prayer. And so that's what we're looking at today. By the way, could I say to you, any vision or mission that doesn't include praise and prayer is incomplete. So we're not really getting out into yet what we're doing in the community, what we're doing out in the, on a global scale. That's when we get to go. We're taking a piece at a time. Acts chapter 2 gives us what is in effect a snapshot of the early church. Here's the church in its earliest form. 
Here's the church in its purest form. Here's the church before it's been corrupted and convoluted with all these thoughts of man and ideas. And here it is in its purest form. It is in its best example for us to follow. I'm uh, going to be reading this morning from Acts 2, verses 40 through 47. I am going to invite you to stand as we do that. I've got a lot to cover this morning. I'm going to try to do it efficiently and timely. Beginning in verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, of course, this is Peter now, when it says he. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. On the very first day of the birth of the church, 3,000 people get saved. And they continue. Now, I want you to pay very, very close attention to what this church was doing. This describes the characteristics of the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold the possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking Bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Father, thank you for your design for the church. Lord, I would be at a loss if we just had to sort of dream up had to develop, had to design our own plan for the church. God, I'm so thankful that you've already given us the blueprint. Lord, I pray that you help us to follow it. I pray that in the context of your vision for the church that you do give us a burden, a specificity, Lord, in terms of how you want us to engage our community, etc. But Lord, ultimately, we want to honor you and, Lord, we want to be humble. And, God, it's, it's really the height of arrogance to think that we could design the plan for the church. Lord, we, we humbly submit and subject ourselves to your already uh, ancient design at this point for the church. Lord, we want to love you. We want to love you through our obedience. And, God, even though I'm talking about the church and and who we are, God, we, we still have our ultimate foundation in Christ and the gospel. So, Lord, we would pray that just as it was with this church that you would add to your church today people who need to be saved. In Jesus' name I ask, amen, and you can be seated. Now, let, let me deal just a little bit farther before I really engage this text in this idea concept, if you will, of vision. Now, somebody might say here this morning, well, Pastor, you're going to be presenting vision today in the next couple of Sundays. Why didn't I have any say in that? Well, listen to me. I didn't even have any say in it. It's a secular concept to think that each pastor can come to a church with a customized vision for that church. The vision is established 
for the church. I cannot harp on this enough. The, the design is already in place. Now, I know somebody might say, well, I've heard in Proverbs 29, 18 for years, where there is no vision, the people perish, but, that, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. That's the KJV version. That's the King James version. It's not a poor rendering, but there are better renderings. I'm reading from the New King James Version, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. It's that second phrase of the verse, no matter which translation you use, that really clues us in on the context of Proverbs 29, 18. Vision or revelation here is a reference to the law or the Word of God. And without the anchor of God's Word, people would drift into lawless rebellion. But when a person, he says, keeps the law, they are happy and blessed. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says it really well. Without revelation, people run wild. But one who listens to instruction will be happy. You see, furthermore, let me say, what audacity... What arrogance to think that we get to set the course for the church. Now, now listen to me. I understand that a church may have an emphasis that is distinct to that church. I, I mean, just for an example, uh, perhaps a church that is a military town, a church that is located near a military base, they may purpose, they may be intentional about ministering and reaching those military families, those soldiers, etc. Okay, I understand that. And so maybe they have some emphasis and some strategy in regards to that, but that still falls under what? Evangelism and outreach, etc. Uh, uh, maybe a, a church, a part of their emphasis for a season might be upgrading or adding facilities and things like that. So they're talking about improving their home base to be able to disciple and do what we're doing today, gather for worship the three words that I'm giving you this morning and over the next few weeks are right from the Bible describing the early church the most effective church that we've ever known by the way so this is not just my vision for the church or my design this is God's vision God's design for the church so the thing I really like about this is that this is taking a, a, a balanced approach we gather with God on, on the Sabbath, on Sunday, and we participate in praise, what we've been doing so far this morning. Prayer is a part of that as well. Whenever we gather, by the way, not just Sunday. And then we grow through discipleship and fellowship. So next Sunday, we're going to be talking about what do we do with people once we get them here? Are we only interested in people warming up pews? Are we really interested in making disciples that make disciples? We'll be talking about that next Sunday. And then we go through our ministry and our mission. What kind of ministry uh, are we going to have locally? What kind of mission are we going to have locally, uh, nationally, and globally? And we will talk about some of those things. This gives us a picture of health, a, a well-rounded, balanced church that is doing and becoming uh, what Christ has prescribed the church to do and to be. So I want to start today by dealing with this idea of, of gathering together just like we have this morning. Many people may not think or, or may think that what we do here on Sundays is, is really not a part of our vision, but I say it is a critical part to say the least. 
what we do as a church and who we are as a church, our identity, our makeup is fashioned by what happens here when we gather or assemble together. So as we gather, there are two very important components that I want to talk about a little bit this morning. As the body of Christ, what do we do when we come together? Number one, we praise. We worship. Verse 47 says that they were praising, praising God. Now before I get to the actual idea or thought of worship, let me remind you that we have in Acts 2 the assembled church. The church was actually coming together, just like we have today, to worship, to praise God. The corporate gathering has always been a part of God's people's life, even prior to the inception of the church. In the Old Testament, there is a call to assemble. Listen to these words. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of His law. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12. This was a call for the people of God, the Hebrew nation, along with those that are called strangers. In other words, those who aren't Hebrew. He said, bring them to the gathering. The word assembly that was used of the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament is used to refer to the congregation of the church, the local church in the New Testament. For example, when Brother James is given instructions on how to treat different kinds of people in the church, he says it like this, James 2.2, 2, For if there should come into your assembly a man, and then he goes on and gives his instructions. But there again is the idea of assembling. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, this, uh, this command given to us to not forsake the assembling, just like we've done this morning, of ourselves together, such as is the manner of some. In other words, when the church, the body of Christ, uh, gets here, uh, gets together, you need to do everything in your power under the sun to be here together with the church of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to congregational assemblies was commanded and expected in both the Old and the New Testament. And I'll go ahead and say this, and I won't back off this statement one bit. You cannot be in a right relationship with God and not actively be involved in a local church. If you spend more time in some parachurch ministry, you've missed it. The church, getting together, is a part of who we are. A lot of people have contemplated lately, what's going on with Kanye West? And, I, and I'll be honest with you, everything that I've read so far, I'm very encouraged. I'm, I'm encouraged that there's been a genuine conversion. Uh, I, I saw a little evaluation of the lyrics of his now I don't care one thing about rap music and that's just a personal preference okay I'm not I'm not making a judgmental statement I mean I'd rather run naked through a briar patch and listen to rap music so I, that's not where I'm headed if he won't sing rap I'm, and, and I, I read some of the evaluations of the rap music it was good my girls like it you know more power to them whatever I, I saw an interview with him talking about repentance everything he said was good so I'm hopeful that genuine conversion has taken place. But here's one place I'll take issue. What Kanye needs to do 
is find himself a local church that's doing verse-by-verse exposition, subject himself to the authority of that local church, get in there where he's got accountability and can be taught the Word of God. Not running all over the country having, quote, Sunday services. You see, there you cannot divorce uh, a conversion, experience, growth, and discipleship from the local church. It's imperative. So what do we do when we get here? All right? I want to share several things that we're going to do when we get here based on God's Word. Number one, listen carefully to these words. Express praise and worship to Christ our audience. Express praise and worship to Christ our audience. Again, verse 47 says that they were praising God. To praise God is to recite His wonderful works and attributes. The word worship literally means to ascribe to Jesus His worth. We worship Him, why? Because He is worthy. We worship and praise Him for all that He has done for us. He's saved me. He's forgiven me. He's adopted me. He's sealed me. He's filled me. He's changed me. He's coming back for me. So pardon me if I get a little wound up sometime when I'm worshiping and preaching. But He's done so much for me. Here's a good statement for you. Worship is not spectating. Worship is participating. We, I'm talking about when I say we, people who are up here on the stage, we are not here to put on a good show for you. Our musicians are not concert musicians. I'm not an entertainer. You're not the audience. This, this is a platform, but we are not performers. We are no more than just prompters for worship or leaders in worship. You don't just observe worship. You participate in worship. And listen to me, church. When we do this, we do it celebratively. Aren't you glad to be a part of church just got a little life? Amen? There is life in Christ. Jesus is not in the tomb. I've read the end of the book, and we win. There's much to be overjoyed about. A pastor received an email from another pastor inviting him to lead a conference on church renewal. So the pastor emailed him back and asked two things. He said, number one, what did he mean by church renewal? And number two, why did it describe the need in his church? And then here's his response, and I quote. He says, our church is filled with good people who lost the enthusiasm for their faith. Everything, including worship, has become business as usual. There is a blandness about the church. We go through the motion, but there is no sense of movement. Our theology is orthodox. Our organization is in line with the denominational plan, and our budget is met annually. But what we lack is joy. Church, listen. Worship is supposed to be a joy-filled celebration of all that we are and all that we have in Jesus Christ. Exuberance heartfelt uh, excitement should characterize our worship. The late, great A.W. Tozer said the missing jewel in the church is worship. May it never be here at EBC. Amen? So we express congregational praise to Christ, our audience. Who are we doing all this for? Christ, our audience. A lady said to the minister of music, Brother Terry, on, on, a, on an afternoon after service, 
said, I really didn't care what you did today for, for what you did today in worship. He said, dear lady, I didn't do it for you. Amen? What we do, we do for him. Christ is the audience. Vocalists don't perform. Jesus is their audience. Even if we have a soloist or a choir special or an instrumental solo, whatever, we're not, or they are not, you won't hear me doing well, they are not performing. They are leading in worship. They are worshiping. So here, here's the way I think about it. When we have one of those kind of things, we usually applaud, which I'm okay. I know that's a westernized concept. It's a concert kind of idea. But here's the deal. When someone blesses me and blesses the kingdom with a song, I'm going to applaud, and 95% of my applause is for the goodness of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and 5% of it is to that person, me telling them, thank you for practicing and preparing to bless me in the kingdom today with that song. vocalist or instrumentalist or choirs or you we're not here to put on shows and put on airs and that's why I'll be honest with you I'm not a real big fan of this whole smoke and mirrors kind of worship experience y'all know what I'm saying I mean I don't mind it when we dim the lights and that kind of stuff but when you when you get all this distracting stuff going on and, you know, maybe that's just because I'm so stinking old at this point. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get legalistic about it. But, I mean, I just, want, I just want us to be focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and not all of the theatrical antics and stuff like that. Let's put the focus on Him. Now, uh, this thought, express. Think about that. We express. There is expression in worship. Would you not agree? I like to watch, you know, watch Paige Bennett worship because she, well, I notice her worship, and that kind of makes me sound like creepy pastor or something. I don't watch her worship, but I mean, just, I can tell that she's just bubbling over with joy, you know, and, and she, she expresses her worship. And we have many, many others that, that do the same thing. So in the context of local church, there's freedom to worship that way. While there may be others who, look to appear to be much more reserved, but the expression of their heart may equally be as joyful. And that's what real freedom is, right? It's freedom to worship in a way that's biblical, whether that includes some physical expression like the lifting of a hand or, or whatever, or, or to quietly and contemplatively worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the early church worshipped, what did they use as a guide? Well, nothing more than the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few of the ways that they would express themselves. The word hallel, in the Hebrew it's the word hallelujah. It's used over 200 times, and it literally means celebration. Worship is to be celebration, celebrated. The word yada, which means to raise your hands. The word barak means to kneel before God. Uh, Tahaliah, it means to sing a hymn. Zamir means to pluck or twitch a stringed instrument. We had Kevin and Wood and Clinton. They were string twitchers this morning. That's what they were doing. They were twitching a stringed instrument. You know, years ago, there was a lot of debate over um, allowing a guitar even in the worship service. 
So we, we only want the piano. Well, first of all, let me say that the piano had a hard time making its way into the church because the only place anybody ever heard a piano back when it was first introduced was in bars. But we don't want one of those guitars in church. Well, I don't know if you know this. I know we're doing keyboard, but a piano is a stringed instrument. You just pluck it a little bit differently, don't you? By the way, let's, let's not let the devil have our instruments. Any instrument that we offer before God. I, I mean, I, I grew up listening to a lot of rock and roll, you know. And I'd, I'd be perfectly fine, Terry, just turning wood loose one morning on Amazing Grace solo on that electric guitar and just letting him wear it out. You know, I, mean, I, I still love to hear... Just a good riff on a, on a riff on a guitar, you know. You see, the instrument we we get tied up and, and and all bent out of shape about all these peripheral things. When the Bible clearly prescribes that we can do all these things and more. For instance, the word ruah it means to shout to God. Used to hear the phrase or term "old shouting Baptist." I wish we still had a few of them. To call means to clap your hands. Rodney, you and I are on staff in Texas. <laughs> eons ago now 20 years ago and our you want to know what one of the controversies we had people started getting saved in our church and people started clapping at, after baptisms and I had some people lose their ever living mind over that you remember when Jeff White got saved and I baptized Jeff White who's a big old weightlifting guy and I baptized him never been in church his life and he came up out of the water threw both hands up in the air and went whoo I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Just, just excited about new life in Christ. And yet I, I had folks upset about that. When the Bible says, clap your hands, it says, shout unto the Lord with the voice of triumph. So there's all kinds of different ways within the confines of Scripture. Not every expression is valid. Within the confines of Scripture to express ourselves to God. And freedom of worship means that you can use one of these ways or you can sit quietly. So we express congregational praise to Christ, our audience. Number two, we enforce the faith through song. I understand that singing is a way to express our praise to God. That's certainly true. You'll get no argument from me. But it is also how we teach and admonish one another. Listen to this, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The lyrics of the songs that we sing uh, admonish us, teach us in the things of God. They reinforce our faith. They reinforce doctrine and theology. As a matter of fact, to me, this morning, we... We sung one of the, the best hymns been written in the last hundred years to me, which is In Christ Alone. I don't know if you know the Gettys, but they're modern hymn writers. If you've never been to a Gettys Christmas concert, I urge you to do it. It's phenomenal. But they've written some of the best hymns, that's, and also the, the Power of the Cross is another one. But you take a... See, we're, and, and Terry and I didn't even plan this, but we were singing In Christ Alone this morning, and for me... I am just relishing it. I'm just basking in that because that is a song that has deep, deep theological uh, implications all through it. 
Just one verse out of it, for instance, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless faith. We're talking about the incarnation. We're coming in on Christmas here. So this, this song is exalting the incarnate Christ. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Talking about, of course, uh, the, the reception that Jesus received on, on this planet. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's Propitiation, that is the thought that God appeased the wrath of God by having the Father unleash His wrath on sin in His body so that we wouldn't have to have it unleashed on us. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's just one verse out of that song and it just gets better the more you sing it. That's good stuff. Listen to me. Music is to accompany the message of the song. And the key element in our singing is not tune, but truth. Now let me touch on a hot button issue for a moment. Here we go. Contemporary or traditional? Well, first of all, let me say, no such labels are even found in the Scripture. I say we just shoot for the biblical. Some people will say, I just like the old-time way. Well, Colossians is 1,900 years old. How much further do you want to go back? So what does it say? What does it say? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The, the Hebrews would sing a psalm much like we sing a chorus. Repetition is a form of learning, so they would repeat it. That's the way the Israelites would sing it. A hymn verses with a chorus and is often testimonial. And again, I say some of the songs that we're singing are hymns, like in Christ alone. That is a hymn. There are more hymns than just what's found in the, quote, Baptist hymnal. And then there's a spiritual song, just a song that exalts Jesus, regardless of genre. And, and hear me this morning, we're not trying to appease any particular group or age bracket when we sing. We're just singing songs that exalt Jesus Christ that fit into one of those three categories. So young people, hear me. Don't check out on us when we sing a hymn that is 300 years old. And all of our mature folks here this morning, you don't check out on us when we sing a chorus or a hymn that's one year old. As long as it's solid, deeply, biblically rooted, and exalts the, Jesus Christ, exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because a song is old doesn't make it a good song. And conversely, just because a song is new doesn't make it a good song. I want you to learn to think critically when it comes to the song lyrics more so than even the style. Let me rock your world for a minute. Who doesn't love to hear Squire Parsons sing Beulah Land? Let me just tell you a little bit about that. Don't have anything against Squire. Don't even really have anything against the song. The word Beulah is only mentioned once in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 62 verse 4 has absolutely nothing to do with heaven at all. It means my delight is in her. And what it does is it pictures Israel being married to the land God gave her through the exodus. Now, it's an old favorite, yes, but not necessarily so biblically sound. Beulah came out of Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, but listen to me, we don't write worship songs 
from metaphorical works, even if they're considered a classic. We just don't do it. Now, I don't come unhinged when I hear Beulah Land, okay? I'm not going to get all legalistic and draw hard lines in the sand, all that kind of stuff. All I'm saying is that song really, it's, it's a concept, it's, it's a contrived idea about heaven, but you'd be hard-pressed to make a biblical case for it. Let me give you this one. Who doesn't like to slap your knee when the old Southern Gospel Quartet's singing, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now? Y'all know that old song? Well, you're going to have to know it because I'm not singing it for you. <laughs> so here's how it goes. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Got to make it to heaven somehow? Seriously? You think Jesus might have a little something to do with that somehow? I mean, I just hate that every time I hear that line, it just vexes my spirit. No, we, we want solidly biblical songs. My only point is not to try to run down this song or that song this morning. My only point is to critically look at song lyrics even more than style. We express praise and worship. We enforce faith with song. Number three, we edify through expository preaching. Uh, look back at verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, teaching of the scriptures. This was the preaching and teaching component of worship. The word edify literally means to be built up. The preaching of God's word builds you up in your faith. Doesn't build you up in your ego. Doesn't build you up in your self-sufficiency. Now some people say build up. Huh. When you preach, all I get is tore up. Well, you're probably right because sometimes you've got to get tore up from the floor up before you can get built up. Amen? You do. Expository. You've heard me already harping on this a little bit in my first few months here with you, but it means literally to exposit. In other words, the, the careful drawing out of the meaning of a text, employing all the skills of hermeneutics in doing so. And the best way to do this, I am convicted, is verse by verse. Draw out the meaning of every single verse. It's text-driven preaching. Now, if it was anything else, we would call it depository preaching. In other words, we would be putting our thoughts and ideas into the Scripture. You ever, you ever heard that? <laughs> I probably told you all this, so just bear with me. When I was in Dothan, Alabama, a man named Robert Kelly, bless his ever-living heart, was out trying to promote our church to other people, and he said, you've got to come to our church because our preacher is a suppository preacher. I don't even know what kind of preaching that is. I, I don't want to try to unpack it for you here this morning, though. There might be some children in the building. But listen to me. Whether you like me or hate me or are indifferent to me, you still need to be subject to the preaching of God's Word. Not because I'm anything special or anything like that. Uh, I asked my wife one time, how many great preachers do you really think they are? And she said, one less than you think. I know that's true. So I'm not anything special. But so that the Word of God can edify you. So that the Word of God can build you up in your faith. God has always exalted the public proclamation of His Word, and He always will. Now, I didn't say that God always exalts the proclaimer. I said He exalts the proclamation of God's Word. It's been forgotten, forsaken in so many of our churches, but it never will be here at EBC. And hear me, a pastor must study and pray and study and pray and be fed with the richness of the Word of God so that he has something to say when he gets up here in the pulpit. I want to eat, sleep, and drink 
the text before I bring it to you. And then I intend to give a thorough exposition of a passage of Scripture. One pastor said, one preacher said, I don't, he said, I don't really prepare, don't really believe in preparing. He said, I just get up there and wait for the Holy Spirit to give me something. Someone asked him, he said, well, what do you do if he doesn't give you something? He said, I just mess around until he does. Well, what I observe in a lot of pulpits, a lot more messing around than preaching. Church, we must gather to worship, assemble, and we express, we enforce, we edify. That is a part of our vision and mission. What happens right here on Sunday? Let me mention this other one. I know I'm going to be pushing it this morning. Uh, and it's prayer. Let me say, if prayer is not a part of our vision, we're sunk already. Sunday school is the church organized. Worship is the church harmonized. Evangelism is the church mobilized. But prayer is the church energized. The Bible says in verse 42, they continued in prayer. Present, continuous sense in the word continue means they were always any occasion all occasions a praying people prayer is how we fight the battle I, in fact i have a sermon series on spiritual warfare and the last message in that series is entitled warfare prayer because that's that's how we advance we advance on our knees prayer is how the first church was birthed. 120 people. Remember this? We just studied this a few weeks ago. 120 people in an upper room. The Spirit comes. The church is birthed. All the church had its beginning with a prayer meeting. How does the church grow, by the way? Well, we might say by telling people about Jesus. Well, that's not a wrong answer, okay? Certainly not. Let me just say it to you like this. We're not ready to tell the world about Jesus until we first told Jesus about the world. If we're not praying for a burden, if we're not lifting names to God for salvation, etc., we're really not ready to engage the world with the gospel. There are 14 times in the book of Acts where a corporate prayer, that is the whole church praying, is recorded. And almost all of them are followed by something miraculous and dramatic. Your individual prayer life is of the highest importance, but what I have in view here in Acts chapter 2 is the idea of corporate prayer. That is when the church assembles for the express purpose of praying. One commentator said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. How does a church meet the demands of ministry? By first meeting with him. You can't meet the demands until you've met with deity, the Lord Jesus. When the girls were toddlers, little bitty, you know, all of us as parents, isn't it the sweetest thing? Your kids come up to you, what do they do? What does that mean? Pick me up, right? They, they want you to hold them. I, I just love the, in, in, the imagery of that. It's, it's a sense of total abandonment. It's, it's the idea that, that they're saying, Daddy, I want to be close to you. Daddy, I want to be with you. And I really think when we pray, when we engage God, we're, we're saying to Him, I, we need you. We're saying we want to be close to you. We, we are asking for all of heaven to show up on earth or, or we can't make it. Everybody will say, I think, amen, amen to this morning what I'm saying. But let me be brutally honest. And I'm just talking in general generalities right now, not necessarily about EBC. Why is it, though, that we can fill the building for worship or fill it for some Christian concert, but you can't hardly get anybody out to a prayer meeting if you have one? Am I telling you the truth? We, um, we like sermons about prayer. 
We like to talk about prayer, but when it comes to praying, most churches are MIA. They're missing in action. And, and this is a place where Easton Ollie Baptist Church is sorely lacking. Now, now hear me, so you don't think I'm just blistering you this morning. I'm not saying that we are unwilling to pray. I'm not even saying that you and we individually don't spend a lot of time in prayer. What I am saying is we're not intentional enough about praying corporately together, you see. So what I'm, I'm doing this morning as a start to address that is to present to you some opportunities to engage in prayer here at our church because it's not going unnoticed by me and I think our staff as well that we need to be praying more so most of this is going to start right after the first of the year. But like right now, and, and even prior to the schedule we went to most recently for our Wednesday nights, we really didn't have a prayer meeting time then. We don't have one now. So starting in January, the first Wednesday night of every month from 6 to 6.30 is corporate prayer time before choir kicks off and all the discipleship classes. We're going to call it First Wednesday. So on the first Wednesday of every month, hey, I know it's just one Wednesday out of a month, but all I can tell you is that's 12 times every year that we'll be meeting corporately to pray that we're not meeting together right now to pray. All we're going to do is come in here. We've got 30 minutes. We're going to get down to business. We'll have prayer. It'll be, it'll be led. It'll be guided so it's not just sort of off the cuff. Here's something I'm going to ask you to do. I want some pastor's prayer partners. I, I would love for people to meet with me every Sunday to pray for me and to pray for what God's going to do in our worship. So I'm, I mean, I've got sign-ups out on, in the lobby, just out there on the welcome desk. Would you pray? Would you sign up to be a, a pastor's prayer partner? And about two or three or four of you will meet with me every Sunday around nine o'clock. And would you just lift me up? I need you. I, I, Charles Spurgeon's my all-time hero. Um. Great, I think probably the greatest century of preaching in the last couple hundred years. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon would go into his study about 3 a.m. on Sunday mornings. He'd go into his study on 3 a.m., start studying for his Sunday sermon, come out time to preach, preach it without notes. I had a preaching professor in seminary told me that, and he said, now you guys aren't Spurgeon. Don't try that. So I don't. But here, let me tell you something about Spurgeon attributed to the power of his pulpit. Underneath, his pulpit in London in the Metropolitan Tabernacle was a prayer room. And there was a group of people under his pulpit praying for what was going, up above, going on up above in the lives of people. And he said that it was the prayers of God's people that gave the gospel buoyancy and power. With that in mind, I not only want people praying with me before I preach, I want some people praying while I preach. We'll be starting what I'm just calling a back 40 ministry. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's a good Tennessee term, isn't it? Every, every cow farmer, horse farmer's got a back 40. But here's the thought. For the 40 minutes that I'm preaching, you're going to, somebody's going to be back here praying. Okay, we don't have a... It'd be rough trying to pray under this stage, but we don't have a place for you to get up under here, but we've got a couple rooms, and that's all that matters. Would, would you sign up to be one of those people that would pray during our, our time of of preaching that God would save somebody, that God would change somebody. We need teams. A husband and wife would be a great team to pray on a given Sunday. It could be two guys together. It could be two females together or something like that. And here's the thing. If a couple hundred of y'all would do that, you only have to do it once a year, you know? Why wouldn't we pray during that time? i tell you something else we'll start. It's called Saturday Night Special. 
on a, on a Saturday night before a special Sunday. I don't care what it is. It's revival meetings or Easter Sunday coming up. We'll just meet up here at 4 o'clock on Saturday evening or 5 o'clock or something like that. And let's pray over it. Let's, let's walk through this worship center and over this property and pray that God would move. And that's not anything you have to sign up for. And then just spontaneous calls to prayer. And hear my, my, my burden in my heart this morning. I don't know what it is, but the altar in our church needs to open up. I don't know. Seems a little frozen up to me. I'm just, I'm just asking God to heed it. <laughs> Amen? Here's what I know we do. We do what's important to us. Amen? It would always grieve my heart over the years to hear people say something along the line, well, oh, Pastor, I forgot about prayer meeting the other night. I forgot about Saturday night special. You know what I think? Mature churches don't ever forget about prayer. Amen? I'm not trying to guilt you into attending one of our prayer meetings. Rather, I'm, I'm asking God to give us a burden so that we're compelled to pray, period. What would this look like? Well, I mean, if we were really a praying church, what would this look like? Well, sure, I, I want those specifically called times to be full of people, but on Sunday, even, um, Maybe there's a few people circled up here in the worship center praying right before uh, time to get started. Maybe there's somebody kneeling at the altar. Listen, I'm, I'm all for people fellowshipping before church. That's all good. But there also needs to be a sensitivity to the greater spiritual demands of what we're here. I want to be like old MacDonald. I mean, a prayer here and a prayer there, here a prayer, there a prayer, everywhere a prayer, prayer. Just people praying. We gather we gather, we praise. We gather, we pray. You say, Pastor, I want to know what we, we got to do. Well, there's plenty of doing to come, all right, but part of us, who we are and what we're to be. Imagine if all we ever did was go. Okay, that's the last component. If we just talked about go. Sooner, sooner or later, if you didn't gather and get refueled, you'd start running on empty. Because, you see, when your output is more than your intake, then your upkeep will become your downfall. We have praise and prayer to, to ensure that we're healthy enough to go and engage the world with the gospel. The longest flight that I've ever been on is from Atlanta to Johannesburg, South Africa. When I first started going to Africa, we would land on an island out in the Atlantic, Del Sol Island. Eventually, we started refueling um, in the Senegal and then on to South Africa. But finally, Delta... Uh, made this a direct flight. So for 15 to 17 hours, you're on a direct flight from Atlanta to, to Joburg. But the longest flight is um, from Panama to Dubai on Emirates Airlines. But here's, here's the thing I want you to know. I don't care how long these flights are. You can go, only go so long without refueling. Amen. You eventually have to. That's what you're doing right now. You come in and you get refueled build up so that you can go out there tomorrow in a world lost without Christ and reach out without burning out. Amen? So here's what I want to do in the invitation time. Let me ask you this. Could your commitment to worship with your church and seeking God in prayer use a little shot of B12? Some of the Pew Research stuff out this right now is a little bit shocking and that is that the average evangelical attends church 1.6 times a month. 
not even 50%. If you find yourself often with missing two, three, even four Sundays in a month, I'm just telling you as a pastor who loves you, not a pastor who's out to get you, you need to think very, very carefully about your church attendance. And let me say a word to young families. I know you're busy. But if you keep making church optional and secondary, you're going to preach a message to those kids that I'm never going to be able to undo with 10 years of expository preaching. And you're going to be in my office or Josh's office somewhere down the road wondering why you can't get your child interested in spiritual things when you send a message to them over and over and over again that the church is not that important. Your attendance may need to pick up a little bit. And by the way, that's about where we are. Did you know that? About a 50%. We've got probably 1,200 active people. Honestly, we can look on our records and determine that. But on any given Sunday, we average anywhere from about 550 to 650 on average Sundays. And then something like Easter or something will blow it out of the water. When I first started in ministry almost 30 years ago, those numbers were hovering at about 70%. That's a drastic, drastic... I mean, the difference would be in us running 800 on Sunday versus 550 or 900. It's, it is something that you need to think about and, and make sure that you're up to where you need to be in church. Now, guys, please don't mishear me. I don't, I don't want you to go out of here today saying, boy, the pastor's just one of those fundamental legalists. He just tries to put these old heavy shackles and chains on us. That's not what I'm about. I'm not talking about you missing a Sunday. I'm not talking about you running up here and watching the leaves die in the, in the park. Okay? <laughs> I, I, you know, I understand that. I'm, I'm just talking about these prolonged, you know, I'm just saying there's no real firm commitment. Y'all follow me, right? Okay. Praying. How about just starting this, mor this morning? I, maybe just some people will gather at this altar and just pray. Pray for our church. Pray for our future, which I think is very bright. Pray for our prayer. Pray that God will give us a burden to pray. And then myself and Rodney and Josh, we're going to make ourselves available because just like the church was adding, or excuse me, like God was adding to the church we read about in Acts chapter 2, perhaps God is going to add to this church family this morning. And maybe that's going to come through somebody giving their heart and life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. Maybe it's going to come through somebody that's already saved and been baptized and uniting with this church fellowship, whatever the case may be, we welcome you to come. There may be people all around, but you come find one of us and tell us what God's doing in your life. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for being faithful to meet us here this morning. It's so refreshing, Lord, to talk about gathering, and I look forward to talking about growing and going in the next couple of Sundays. Lord, we just are simply trying to align ourselves with your word for the church. God, we praise you this morning because you're worthy. And we pray now because we know you hear and you answer. And so therefore, Lord, we expect fruit during this time of invitation and decision for your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet. We're going to be singing. You come. Thanks for listening to the East Sonali Baptist Church Podcast. Be sure to go to our website, eastonali.church, to find more messages like you just heard and to find out how to be more involved at Eastonali. If at any point during this message you made a decision to follow Jesus or you would just like more information about Eastonali, 
Email info at God bless and have a great week.